Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Andrew Krauss. I'm one of the co-founders here at InventRight. We'll be doing a whole hour of Q&A with the theme speeding things up. So when we do these Q&As, we also like to have a theme. So I'll try to infuse that into my answers and talk about that generally, uh, whatever the theme is. And today's theme is speeding things up. Um, and again, my name is Andrew Krauss. I'm one of the co-founders here at InventRight. Stephen Keys, our other co-founder. What do we do? We guide people to license products. Why would you want to license a product? Because you don't need to start a company. You don't need to raise money. Um, and you don't need to start a business from scratch. You don't need to hire employees. So when you license to a big company, it's their money, it's their employees, and it's their massive distribution. They're going to do all that work, tap into all the resources that they have. Um, if a few of you could type in yes, just to confirm that you can hear me, that would be great. Um, That'd be fantastic. Once I get one or two yeses, I know everybody can hear me. Okay, great. I got them. We're good there. Um, so let's just jump in a little bit here. Um, Alex, so his first question is, well, first, before I do that, there's a bunch of links that I put in the chat. Um, one of the links is to our uh, Inventions for Sale page or Buyer's Guide, and we put that together for Christmas. It's just a portion of our students, but a lot of them that currently have products on the market. And you can go to that page and you can support them by buying their products or just checking it out. These are all people we've helped license products. Um, but we're doing a giveaway. So every week this month, we're giving away three of our students' products. So we'll, we're, we already have the winners for the first and the second week. Now we're going to the third week. So please click on that link for that a buyer's guide link. And it's a link to our students' products that are currently on the market that we help them license their product. And if you enter that giveaway, we will uh, ship three people our students' products. You'll get to pick which product if you win. We'll drop you an email. Um, I need to get back to the winners today. I haven't done that yet. Um, so that's pretty cool. So check that out. Also, there's a free resource link there. We've got a ton of great free resources. Click on that link as well if you haven't done so. Um, and then there's some more information about our coaching programs and then more information about the rest of our services. So all those links are right there in the live chat if you want to use them. Okay. Um, yeah, thank you, everybody. Everybody's so cool. I, I love doing these. Uh, people always appreciate um, the time that I put into these. What I will say is if you could give me a thumbs up, um, that would be great. Um, just to show you appreciate me uh, helping you guys out because um, we have about half the number of people that give me a thumbs up that are on. So um, if you want to wait till I answer your question, you just won't give it to me before then. Well, fine, no problem. Um, but I'd appreciate that. And also subscribe down below and click on the notification button too. Nothing's going to blow up. You're not going to get spam or anything by subscribing to a channel on YouTube. Um, okay. Alex says, is it a bad idea to submit two variations of one product to a company um, I'm not sure which one they would want to use, Part, parts of which may differ in price to manufacturers. So I'm about 99% sure, Alex, that you're a current InventRight student. Correct me if I'm wrong. I would show your coach. The answer is it depends. Um, you, what you guys definitely don't do is general information for everybody is tr try to show five different variations of the product. Hell no. That ain't gonna work. They don't got time for that. It's a giant freaking mess. But what we do see people doing sometimes, it's like you got a big, you know, money shot, the big shot of your product, 
the hero shot, whatever you want to call it, in your one-page sell sheet. And then you've got a little smaller shot that says optional variation. Does that mean you guys should all be doing that? No, I'd say the vast majority of the time I would not do that. But it might be applicable for you, Alex. So you have a coach, so you should ask your coach. You should have a talk with your coach about that. I can't give you a general answer, of course, without looking at the product. Um, but generally, the advice I'm going to give is, um, so today's theme is speeding things up. If you want to slow things down, if you want to send to 30 companies and overwhelm them with five, six different variations, five, six different sell sheets, no, that will slow things down. Because today's theme, I'm answering people's questions and, keep, and also trying to infuse the theme, speeding things up. If you want to slow things down, go ahead and send them five, six variations. Realize that's not working and then you're going to have to resend everybody, okay? Um, if they'll even look at you anymore. It's really a rookie move to do that. But have I seen instances where it's like one product and you got a little smaller, smaller picture where it's in the sell sheet in your marketing materials where it says optional variation? Or you might not say that even. It might say some different wording. It depends on your product. So I didn't um, get a confirmation from you, Alex, but I'm 99% sure you're a student. So you have the benefit of asking your coach. They know what your product is and it, it, it'll depend. Yeah, you wrote yes already. So yeah, it's going to depend. And so for those of you who don't have a coach, you know, you can't ask that. And people will tend to really love to do what Stephen and myself call kitchen sink or Swiss Army knife inventing. So a Swiss Army knife, it's got all these different features and stuff. So, you know, throwing in too many features, too many variations, or the kitchen sink, everybody's heard that term, at least Americans have heard that term, throwing everything in the kitchen sink in there. Big, big mistake, makes you look really amateur. And it really, but it really is hard for inventors the fact that they have to pick one version of it, put their best foot forward. Um, you can't overwhelm them. They need to look at it and just have an instinct. If you're overwhelmed with all these different variations, you're screwing it up. You have to do it. And it'll always be better. Here's the way I'm going to say it. It will always be better to pick your best, what you think is the best version. You may not be certain than to try to include five or six variations. That'll never work. You're just shooting yourself in the foot. But people, but, but, but I want to include all this. No, you can't. You can't, okay? You will just shoot yourself in the foot. You'll be wasting their time and you want to respect their time, okay? Um, Mike had a question here. Mike, you, you're such a regular on here. I'm surprised like every single time I do this Q&A, I answer this question. I'm, you know, it's just getting old. Like, so I'm surprised you haven't been on one of these where I answered it. But Mike said, um, and thank you for being a regular, by the way. How can someone find out if their product idea can even be manufactured and what price point? God, I answer this on like every live stream. Um, so a lot of times you can just look at similar things and go, well, it's somewhat like that. So, but mine just has this hinge. So I know it can be made and that one's $19.95 and that one's $24.95. So, and I know, you know, my hinge that I'm putting on the side of this, okay, it might add a buck. Um, but I don't think it's going to add any more of that. Maybe not even more cost because then we're doing something over here. Most of the time, you can look at similar products and people, well, there's nothing like mine. There's nothing like it. Never say that ever, by the way, even if you really truly believe it's true, which it almost never is 98% of the time. Um, there's always something somewhat similar. So when you're looking for 
can it be made? Can it be made at a real reasonable price? You can look at products that aren't even in the same category. It's the same amount of plastic. It's the same um, shape, you know, and it might be, a, or, or it's somewhat similar. Like my product has 90% of the features on that product. And by adding my features, how much more will it add? So you can kind of safely make the assumption. It's going to be, maybe it's going to be 20% more, maybe a little bit less. Um, but I'm pretty certain it can be made because they're making that and then my change, like I don't know how to make that change, but it's not hard with what I'm doing. I just designed it a little bit different here. So you can make these assumptions. So to think that you need manufacturing experience or you need to get quotes in Asia, I mean, my God, no, most of the time that's not required the vast majority of the time. So I've given, I give this answer on every single stream, but you know, I, I shouldn't be like, oh, you know, just cause it's like, over and over for me, if some of you are new and you guys all find that beneficial, it's really, that's a really empowering piece of information. So sorry for complaining about that, Mike. I just figured you've heard, I just surprised you asked that, but maybe you weren't on a stream where I did cover that. Um, uh, C. Molina is their handle, says, is it inappropriate to give the the headquarter in person, to go to go to the headquarters in person of a company, give my sell sheet and video to them. It's a complete and utter waste of time. You should know it's that's utterly ridiculous. Nobody should be doing that. And sometimes I get people that are like, like our students to like, oh, the company's only a hundred miles from me. Should I drive there and do an in-person meeting? So even if they said, yeah, you can come by, whatever, do that. No, I wouldn't. You know, your sell sheet should be doing the selling for you. That in-person meeting, you're being so unprofessional when you do that. Now, if you're at a trade show or something, you want to show them your sell sheet and they're not busy with the buyer or something, you want to talk to them a few minutes and they're up for it, great. But otherwise, give them your sell sheet or send them a link to their video and then talk with them afterwards so you're not wasting their time. But to go in person, no, no, don't do that. Total, don't, don't, don't do that. Please don't do that. No, 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 no. But I'm glad you asked the question. There's no such thing as a bad question. Um, but today's theme is speeding things up. And so we're answering questions with that in mind. And so I'll give you a, a C. Molina's the handle. If you thought you had to do that, first of all, if you're licensing and you're using the event right approach, you're probably reaching out to on most products, 20 or 30 companies. Are you going to drive to the headquarters of 20 or 30 companies? No, you're not. No, 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 no. Now, if you did that because one company was close to you, do I see that as a giant and utter waste of time? Yes, I do. Now, even if they showed interest, would I still drive over there and meet with them? No, I still wouldn't do that. I would talk to them on the phone or do a Zoom call. Let's say they're only 50 miles from your house. No, I still wouldn't do it. That's not how licensing is done. It's done over like typical negotiations once you get interest are one to three months of back and forth, email, phone, and sometimes Zoom, okay? That's how it's done in little bits and pieces. If you want to get it done, this isn't some stupid show like Shark Tank. You're not gonna drive in, like speak to the board and do a deal and they'll sign a check. Like, I'm not saying you guys think that, but I think some people have a subconscious feeling like they hope they could do that. And that's not how it works at all. So if you haven't done this before, you got to get guidance from people that have done it before. Um, Edgar and Jess said, hi, Andrew. Thank you for your time. We appreciate your welcome. Uh, Angel said, hello from San, San Antonio. Welcome, Angel. 
Uh, let's see what else we got here. Uh, Jay, wonderful success is their handle. Hi, Andrew, thank you for all you do. Question, can someone get a design patent and a utility patent on the same product? Yes. So what's the difference between a design and utility patent? A utility patent is what most people are getting. And our students, they, they don't file utility patents. They file provisional patent applications, which are provisional utility patents, okay? Now, there's no such thing as a provisional design patent. So a provisional utility patent can be filed for $60. They actually lowered the fee from $75 to $60. What if they lowered the fee on anything these days? The price of everything is going up. So that's freaking cool. I love that. They started that in January. So you can get a provisional patent for $60. Now, if you don't know how to write it, you can use our smart IP software. You can get on inventright.com. It's only $99. Or if you become a coaching student of ours, you get unlimited use of it. You can do a whole bunch of provisionals with it. And then you just pay the patent office fee of $60. Okay. So a utility patent or a provisional patent, which is a provisional utility patent, is the way something functions. You're writing in the end, not the way you write a utility, but it's it's on the functionality of the product. Okay. But you're not you're not doing claims. But in a, a utility patent, you're going to end up doing claims. But it's the way something functions. It's like the, this thing moves here and has this functionality and utility. And you get a chance to discuss that and protect the functionality and utility of the invention. Okay, And you're going to have all these different claims eventually, or you're going to try to um, protect them with the way you write the provisional. Now, a design patent is none of that. It's literally just a line drawing picture it is not something you can do on your own because you need the drawings need to be done to this specification like dotted lines here strong lines here if you're not a professional patent drafter you're not going to be doing your own um design patent okay and it's not 60 bucks you're going to probably need to pay at least 1500 to get that done and it has very limited protection in the right circumstances, it can be amazing. I would say 95 to 98% of our students, probably 98, would not be filing a design patent. They're just all doing a provisional patent application, okay? And everybody thinks they're special. Everybody thinks they're the exception. But I'm telling you guys, 98% of you are not, and you shouldn't be filing a design patent. Now, you don't know if you're that 2%, so you should know what it is, right? So a design patent, you cannot claim, oh, there's this hinge over here and has this functionality, does this, does that. You can't do all that. It's literally a picture. So if these were the, if these were eyeglasses, and let's say the there was this inventor that created these cool eyeglasses where there was a magnetic bridge right here, and the magnets would it would come apart. Okay. Um, you're not protecting the functionality of that. In a utility pattern or a provisional pattern, you are, but a design pattern, it would literally just be a drawing. And if somebody did it and it looked different, then they could get around your design patterns. So quite often they are useless. Okay. Now, if you're really clever, and I'm not going to give you a bunch of examples because that's like a whole class, you know, on when that is. If you're very clever about it, they can be very useful, but it's not the most of the time. So can you get a design patent? and a provisional or utility on the same product absolutely you can and some people do so i'm just saying they're useless for most people but if there is an instance where they are useful now also some patent attorneys that aren't cool 
I'm not going to say unethical, aren't cool, and just want to try to get money out of you. They'll be like, well, you know, I don't know if that's functionality, and I don't, I don't think you're going to get a, a patent on this, but why don't we get you a design patent? And they're moving you over to design patent because they can always get it. It's just a picture. The patent office will say, sure, you can have that. You'll get it almost every single time. Design patents don't get rejected. Will it protect you? No. So I've seen people work with attorneys that do design patents. And I'm like, wow, that wasn't really cool, that patent attorney. They were just trying to get money out of the person one way or another. They knew it wasn't patentable. So they're like, hey, well, they get a design patent. The matter didn't know any different. Now, that's not always the case. If that actual shape of the product was critical, if you made it a different shape, it wouldn't have the same benefit in one way or another, then it can protect you. I don't have, I don't have examples to give you here. Why would I? It doesn't apply to 98% of you. I mean, we train our students on that. We've done webinars on that. Am I going to waste my time on that right now? No. But at least now you know the difference between the design patent utility. And you know that if some patent attorney is like, well, I don't think we can get a patent on this. Let's do a design patent. You'll be like, why? Why? You know, and they're like, well, because, and they give you really good reasons, maybe, but they don't give you reasons. Well, because we can get it. Well, screw that, you know. Um, but it, so it can be extremely clever. And I've had students that we got, we, they did a provisional and they did a deal with the company. And then they also did a design patent to cover, to cover it because it did make sense for them. For the vast majority of you, it will not make sense. So just because you heard Andrew talk about a design patent, you should all run out and get a design patent. Most of you are just going to get a provisional patent. Okay. Uh, let's see. Oh, okay. Domingo said, Lopez says, thanks to your videos. I have my first possible licensing deal. Thanks. That's great. Domingo Lopez says, on my first try, boy, he's going to get a bunch of haters. No, support him, people. Um, okay. Some products don't need a sell sheet. Yeah, that's true, Domingo. I'd be interested to know if you, if you don't. Now, Domingo, I have my first possible licensing deal. Okay. I talked to a lot of inventors that, well, First of all, I talked to some inventors that they're like, oh, I, I'm in a licensing deal. I'm like, oh, really? Tell me about it. And they're like, they're like, oh, well, the company agreed to look at my sell sheet. I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, they haven't seen it yet? That's not a licensing deal. Oh, no, I haven't seen it yet. And I'm like, that's not a licensing deal. That's like we agreed to look at what you have, but they haven't even seen it yet. I, I can't tell you how many times where I get that. And I'm like, what's going through your head? Like, some people are very inarticulate, and I know, and that's fine. I can be at times too, but it's like they're just excited, right? So, um, and Domingo, I don't think that's you, but um, uh, if you could drop me a deal, uh, an email with where you are, I'd love to hear about that. We can also help you through that. Um, getting interest is not a licensing deal. Um, if you do and say the wrong things, if you mess up one thing, you can mess up the whole thing um, without a doubt. Um, also it's normal to get interest. Like I have students that they'll reach out to 30 companies, get interest from five. And they got another student reach out to 30 companies, interest from none. And then others interest from two, one falls off, they do a deal with one. It's all over the map, but don't confuse initial interest with doing a deal. And here's the, the really big thing that shocks people. If you think they're going to guide you to do the deal, you're sorely mistaken. If you're relying on them to tell you what to do next, if you're just like, oh, we're showing interest and you're like just waiting for them to tell you what to do, at least half of those deals will fall through. 
And it's a deal that you could have gotten done quite often because you didn't guide them. And you're like, well, this is a big company, Andrew. They've licensed before. No, they don't know how to license. Now, if it's a company that's done, regardless if they have experienced licensing a lot or a little or none, you still need to guide them 100% of the time. So when our negotiation coach is helping our students through that, it's at least when I look at the deals at the end of the day, at least 50%, we moved it forward and maybe 50%, they moved it forward. Sometimes 70%, we moved it forward. Don't think, oh, well, they're showing interest. So they'll tell me what to do and they'll move. It. No. So that would be your biggest um, thing to worry about, Domingo. If you don't, if you can't help them move it forward, if you don't know how to, if you don't know the timing of the negotiations, the timing of what to do, what not to do. It's like this deal flow and you mess with that deal flow, you mess up the deal, okay? So be really careful about that. But congratulations, that's amazing. We'd be happy to help you if you need some help. Um, okay, Edgar and Jess said, I have a company interested in a patent, but they do business internationally. Is it best to patent in the US or in the country they primarily sell in? Patents are only good in the countries in which you file them, right? Um, most of our students are not filing internationally. So Edgar and Jess, um, you know, I, but if it's a company, I don't care if they're a US company or European company, if they're selling in the US and they're like, hey, we sell 80% of our product in the US, we sell 20% in Europe. You know, I, uh, having a provisional US patent is great and they will probably want that. Sometimes they don't care, okay? Now, I had a student that, um, just a random example, uh, they had interest from a European company, but they were really big in the US. And they sold, they just, it was, you know, I already had that example in my mind. They sold about 80% of the product in the US, even though they were a European company, and they sold about 20% in Europe. And because um, the inventor was told, we guided them to do that interviewing. And they were saying, and this isn't always the case, guys, at all. So this isn't the norm, but this company said this. Um, they said, well, you know, why should we pay you in Europe? You don't have a patent there. We'll pay you in US, but we don't want to have to pay you in Europe. And I'm like, no, you know, tell them, look, if you want the rights, you need to pay me. I came to you with this idea. You need to pay me in Europe and US. And, and I don't care if you file in Europe or not, but you need to pay me there. And they eventually came to the conclusion, like, great, we'll pay you in both places. Cause they, cause she was using her leverage with interest in selling in the US where they sold mostly, and most companies don't wanna bother with patents in Europe because usually it's a smaller smaller volume and they just don't care. And so she said, no, you gotta pay me for both. And she used her US patent as leverage to get also paid in Europe, but nobody's filing a patent in Europe. So it's just a random example of one of the million of things that can come up during a negotiation that I found that when I talk to inventors outside InventRight, and they tell me about their negotiation. And they, they tell me what they dug their heels on. And I'm like, you didn't need to dig your heels in on that. We could have done this and this. And they killed the deal because they were digging. They didn't know how to move it forward. Company didn't know how to move it forward. But this is a perfect example of how we moved it forward, how we guided the student to. And the student was getting really pissed. Like, I don't, well, I, they need to pay me there. Like, I, do I have to file patents in Europe? And, and the focus was now for them, like, I got to file patents in Europe. We're like, hell no, it's not worth it. They're not going to be doing that much business there in this particular case. 
Um, we still have only about half the number of people that are attending live that, that have given me a thumbs up. So if you guys give me a thumbs up or I'll just do the arm cross and just sit here and stare at the camera until more people give me a thumbs up. Seriously, please help me out. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So today's theme is speeding things up, um, you know, and we're doing this theme in the context of the questions that I'm answering. So, but, you know, some of this stuff isn't like, not only it's slowing things down when you don't know how to negotiate, it's killing deals. So how does that slow things down? Now you need to go to another company. You could have done a deal with this company, but because you thought the company was going to guide you, you didn't close a deal that you could have closed. Now, everything that we do is to guide our, our members, our students, to become empowered so in the future they can do deals without us. And so one of the things you need to really understand, guys, is that they will not guide you. They, you might say, what's your process? And they give you a little bit here or there. But you're always, always at least 50% responsible for moving the deal forward. If you think they showed interest and now things will just move forward because they're interested, hell no. Hell no. Only the most amazing product would it still move forward. But that's why our students are closing deals because our negotiation coach is guiding through that back and forth, guiding through those, that, those choppy waters and helping the student realize that the company will not guide you through the process. They won't. It's not their job. You're supposed to be a pro inventor. You showed them an idea. You know, you need to negotiate. And if you're saying, look, I'll get the person I'm negotiating with to tell me what to do, does that seem like a good way to negotiate? That's a good way of putting it, right? No, not so much. <laughs> you need to know what the hell you're doing. Um, okay. Uh, Angel said, uh, hello, question. If my product is not patentable, how can I protect it when I go into negotiations for a licensing deal? My product has been out for longer than two years. Um, well, first of all, you could always file a provisional on an improvement. It could be an insignificant improvement and it will let you legally say patent pending on the sell sheet and marketing materials for $60. I guess students do that all the time. I advise them to do that. It just looks professional. So I like doing that. Um, and that way, you know, and, but we get students all the time. So maybe your thought is, oh, well, if I don't have a patent, all companies are assholes. So they'll just try to screw me. They'll go, you don't have a patent. So, okay, bye. And within, you know, six or eight months, you're going to see your product on the market. I have never seen that happen in 23 years. So if that's your perception, it's wrong. Could it happen? Yeah, it could happen. But if you know how to guide them appropriately, it doesn't happen to our students, but most inventors aren't professional and they don't need to know how to guide companies there. And they come to false conclusions that, you know, have a company said like, well, why should we pay? You, you don't have a patent. It's because my idea and I came to you with it and you didn't have the idea. And they're like, oh, and they think on it and they're like, okay, <laughs> you know, it's more sophisticated than that, of course. But um, yeah, so uh Definitely, definitely. So, uh, Angel, hopefully that's helpful. Rule, hey, Andrew, long time, haven't been here. LOL, uh, good to be here. What can I do if I can't find a company that specializes in the product I've created as it's a novel idea and has, and it's a niche market? Um, 
you're not looking at it the right way. You're trying to find a company. And I see a lot of, even our students do this, but the coaches will fix it. Um, you think they have to be selling pretty much more or less what your product is. No, they just need to be in that category. So yeah, your product is new and novel and that's great, but they don't, they just need to be in that category. Oh, there is no category that this product, yes, there is. I've never seen a product in 23 years where I couldn't look at it and guide the inventor and say, these are the types of companies you need to go after. Sometimes it requires brainstorming, 30, 45 minutes, you figure it out. I had a new student last week where we brainstormed for a good 40 minutes before we kind of figured it out, but we totally figured it out. We kind of figured it out, we brainstormed, brainstormed, and then we totally figured it out. And then it was like, we went from a list of about, it was about just two companies, literally, to about 60 by brainstorming it. So, um, but to, for, to help everybody, if, you, if you're like so specific, I need to find a company that's doing more or less exactly like my type of music. No, I mean, no, you, you got to look at the category they're in. So I'll give you some gross examples, generalizations. Like if they're doing dog products, like they're doing a dog, dog toys, okay? And you got a dog toy, but it's very different than their dog toys. Well, I don't care. They're doing freaking dog toys. I don't care that you're different. Your product is different. It's a dog toy. Or they're doing kitchen products. Well, it's a kitchen product. Okay. Maybe there's ones doing kitchen cutting boards and there's ones not, but you could still, and it's a kitchen cutting board, you could still reach out to companies not doing kitchen cutting boards. They might be like, well, we never want to get in kitchen cutting boards because there's these guys, but wow, this is really different. And so now we're going to get into it and they're in kitchen, but they're not in kitchen cutting boards. So it can help them kind of expand a little bit outside of the very specific categories they're in, but they're in the broad category. They're in the major stores where you want to be in. So the today's theme is speeding things up. One way that will we'll make your projects go like molasses is limiting your list of potential licensees. If you want to slow things down, if you want to be doing this for years and years and years without really doing it, make a nice small list of companies. That's a guaranteed way not to be successful, you know? And I know I say quite often, our students can make a list of 20, 30, even 60 companies. Are there some products where it's only eight, it's only 12? Yes, but rarely. And, uh, and okay, well, at least then you have the eight or 12 that are, that are, that are potentials. But a lot of people think it's only two or three or eight or 12, and it's not, it's 30, 40, 50. Okay. But yeah, if you want to slow things down, make a nice small list of companies, be super slow about reaching out, overthink it beyond belief. Um, you know, uh, but it's also, you know, to go the opposite direction, is it a waste of time to send out a terrible marketing piece to 30 companies? Yes. 95% of the sell sheets that I see from non-invent rights students are not good enough. So you should be concerned about that. So if you want a, a litmus test, if you want a case study on what people do wrong, they send terrible marketing materials and, and then they're sending it to the wrong companies. They're not sending it the right way. They're not approaching companies right. And when they get interest, they think the company's gonna guide them. That's just a few things. Like this is off the top of my head, just a few. There's so many things you guys can do wrong. It's amazing, but none of it's rocket science. 
Um, so Rule, thank you for that question. Um, so you you've got to you know your 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 product is a novel idea, yes, but there's always a broader market people that sell stuff in that space. You should be able to find them. Um, do most people need help with that? Yes. Um, can anybody do it? Yes. Um, okay. I already answered that one, Mike. Mikey. Uh, Will of the Maker, thumbs up, everyone. Great. Thumbs up to you, too. Uh, Will said, I've been watching a lot of the old videos. How much has changed with licensing the five past five or 10 years? Uh, different techniques, companies act differently. You know, for the most part, you know, you watch some of those old videos, Will, you don't have to worry about them being out of date. Um, but yeah, if you watch something 10 years ago, we're not talking a bunch about LinkedIn or at all about LinkedIn. What we're talking about now, but when we're talking about mindset stuff, none of that's changed. We're talking playing a numbers game. So I would be comfortable with you watching older videos. Don't hesitate to do that. But I would also watch newer videos as well on our YouTube channel. Uh, Veronica said, what does the initial call to your company entail? Okay, I'm assuming you're talking about InventRight. So if you book a call with us and you're talking to Sylvia or Dana or sometimes myself about the program, it's just kind of like assessing, like, what are you, what are you looking to do? Um, you know, what general category is your product in? Um, are you, we're kind of assessing if you're going to be coachable, um, answering your questions, explaining how the coaching works, um, helping you figure out which program would be right for you, whether it's the $29 program that has no coaching or the $3,500 program or the academy online coaching that's in between it, like $1,500, um, helping you assess what would be right for you. We're really chill. We just kind of are very honest about the benefits of each. And um, people typically have quite a few questions. So that's pretty much how it goes if you book a call with us to talk. There's no, I don't like it when I call salespeople and they're like running a script with me. And then I ask a question, they can't go off script. I find that annoying as hell. I'm like, I just asked you a question and then you're just like talking at me. So we'll, we'll ask questions, but if you ask, if you ask a question, um, you know, I'll stop and I'll go, oh yeah, I can answer that question, you know? So um, it's really chill, we're really chill. So yeah, guys, don't hesitate to book on our contact us page and talk to us. Hopefully that was what you were talking about, Veronica. Uh, Celo Molina said, thanks, you're welcome. Uh, let's see, uh, Ethan said, hey Andrew, I'm not getting many email responses and don't have many connections on LinkedIn yet. I was going to start cold calling this week. Any tips for getting more responses? Yeah, I can't, that's so much. I mean, people do everything wrong. Uh, first of all, you can add more people to LinkedIn. Um, what are some of the mistakes people on LinkedIn? They, they think they need to know the people they're connecting to. Like, I forget how many contacts I have. I, I don't even remember if it's 12,000, something like that. Steven has like 16. And people are like, oh, but I don't know that person. I'm like, I don't know 99.9% .9 of people. So even if somebody's like soliciting you, you should add them to your, your LinkedIn because if they're soliciting a lot of other people, it's, it's some weird pyramid scheme. It's not, but that's kind of what LinkedIn is. It's like, if you add Steve, if you add myself, whatever, I forget how many I have on LinkedIn. Let's say it's 12,000. Um, all 12,000 of my contacts are now your second degree connection. You add Steven, all 16,000 of his. So don't be, 
don't like I, God, I need to know these people. So Ethan, there's no reason for your LinkedIn network to be so small. Add a bunch of other inventors, add a bunch of people and and build your network. I think once you get, in my opinion, once you get to two or 300, you're ready to start reaching out. Um, you're probably not sending the right stuff. You're not sending the right invitation. You're probably doing something really wrong there. Um, and then you can also use email and you can also use the phone. But um, we guide people on LinkedIn all the time. So we'd have to take a look at what you're doing. And obviously that requires coaching. Uh, I don't know what you're doing. Um, Colin said, hi, Andrew, how long is a typical licensing agreement considering a patent protects product for 20 years? What's the length of contract you recommend? It doesn't really matter. Um, quite often, um, and I'll explain why, quite often it's three or five years. Sometimes it's it's there's there's really no particular uh, time. It's kind of left open. But um, here's the thing. Once they get their wheels turning and they spent money on it, if they don't put a limit on it, I'm always blown away that they leave it open after a period of two or three years or something like that, or even a year, you know, because I've never had a student want to do this to a company, but you can get them over the barrel. Like they've invested hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then after a period of time, it's not specified what will happen. And then you could go, well, no, I, I don't want 5%. Now I want 8% royalty. I've never, I would never advise an inventor to do that to a company, but I'm amazed that companies will put themselves in that position. Um, and they do all the time. I'm amazed. But most of the time, um, it, there's a, whatever the terms you agreed upon is providing they're meeting the minimum guarantees, the minimum amount they need to sell every quarter and pay you in royalties, that they can hold on to the product as long as they like, as long as they're paying you those royalties. Now, they need to pay you those minimum guarantees regardless of what the product sells. So if it's 10,000 units uh, a quarter, and they only sell 8,000, they still need to pay you on 10,000. How long do companies want to pay you minimum guarantees for a product they're not selling You know, well? Um, so they'll want to hand it back to you. So usually it just, it, it reverts back. It doesn't, so it doesn't matter some three or five years, it reverts back to they have to continue to pay royalties for as long as they sell the product, okay? But I've seen ones where after that period of time, it needs to be rediscussed why would they put themselves in that position? I never would. I'd say, we'll continue to pay the same royalties providing we meet these minimums, you know? And they don't like the minimums. Our negotiation coach helps our students argue about minimums all the time. They argue about it all the freaking time. And every single time we insist on it or a variation of it. That's where I talk to inventors that got themselves into deals where they don't have any minimums. They have no exit clauses. I'm like, what the hell are you thinking? I'm like, did you just sign the contract they gave you? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, what? In 23 years, we've never, ever had a contract that an inventor got from a company. And we said, just go ahead and sign it, ever. Okay? You have to have escape clauses. You have to have. But why would you take it back if they're performing? Right? And so that's a long story. but. Um, so yeah, and, and just because a patent's 20 years doesn't mean the product's gonna sell 20 years. How many products sell 20 years? Now, if it does, it does. So Colin, to answer your question, in my opinion, it should go on indefinitely, but sometimes it, at, at, a, at a two-year mark, at a three-year mark, at a five-year mark, it could be renegotiated or rediscussed, but most of the time you're gonna renegotiate the same terms. But if you come up with a new version of the product, you know, and that's not what was licensed. You could renegotiate new terms. Maybe you're helping them keep on top by a better version of the product. And now you want 
a seven percent royalty as opposed to a six percent royalty, and you could negotiate that. You know. Okay. So um, Rick said, should you get the price of a plastics and other materials before talking to a company? No. Well, first of all, as an inventor, you'll never get a good price. If you go get some quotes for manufacturing the product and you show them those numbers, you might as well just shoot yourself in the foot right now, you know, because you'll never get the numbers they would. Don't bother doing that. And definitely not a quote on the cost of the plastics or the cost of the raw materials. No, no, no. Look at similar products. Go, well, if they can do that, they can do this. And sometimes you can't do that, but the vast majority of the time you can. But if you're like, if you're making a product and your product is going to cost, it's going to have to sell for $299. But the average product in this space, which are kind of products next to yours, the most expensive one is $29. That's a problem. And I've talked to some unrealistic inventors. I'm like, given your product and the space that it's in, this makes no sense. You added so many baubles and trinkets, you're going to make it like five times the cost of anything else in the space, but it doesn't have five times the value. So you're going to have to remove some of this stuff. We need to figure this out. Now, people that are students of ours, we help them take a close look at that from the get-go, you know, because you're always studying the other products in the space. So you got to make it real. Um, but yeah, getting cost of materials and stuff, no, you don't have to do that. You're not selling a patent. You're not selling a prototype. You're selling the benefit of your product. So show them the marketing piece. Let them look at it and dream about how much they can sell. Ooh, this is good. Yeah, I think our customers would like this based on this marketing. And then you go from there, okay? Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Richard said, how long do patents last? And can a license expire? Can you license an expired patent? You know, if a patent is expired, you could just file a provisional on an improvement to it. So if a patent's expired and then you can't patent that product again, but let's say the patent's expired is A and B in it. And then you add C, you can file a provisional on C that wasn't covered in the in the expired patent. And then you can legally put patent pending on the sell sheet. What in the end, what you're selling is not a patent guys. What you're selling is the benefit of your product and you're showing them what you think their customers will buy. So you can definitely license an expired patent, preferably if you have an improvement of some sort on it. Okay. Then you definitely can. Uh, Michael Scott said, I declare bankruptcy exclamation mark. I have no idea what that means. Um, okay. I'm sorry. That sucks. I don't know, bankruptcy with the deal, if you could give us further explanation, that would be great. Um, yeah, oh, this is a cool, the Walkin' Giant says, that's her handle, has any InventRight student ever joined the InventRight team after having success with InventRight? Yeah, most of them. <laughs> so every single one of our coaches is a former student. Every single person in customer service is a former student. Both of our salespeople are former students. Um, I'm really, really proud of that. People at InventRight, they work here because they believe in you, because they believe in the mission, and they believe in what we're doing here. And that's amazing. That's extremely unusual. I've never met, uh, I've never known of another company where the vast, I mean, there's some people in marketing that were former students, and so not everybody is a former student, but where the vast majority of the employees are former members 
of the organization. I'm so proud of that. And, um, and I, I decided to do that a long time ago. You know, you're never going to get a, you know, somebody picking up the phone. Hey, how can I help you? You know, and like they don't care. They're just trying to move you along. Like everybody cares because they were you at one point. So I think that's amazing. I really love that. Okay. Yeah, and Veronica verified, yeah, that's what she meant about the initial call with InventRight. She said, if you do a sales call with us, how does that work? It's very warm and fuzzy, very friendly, very direct. So there's no beating around the push. There's no get rich quick crap. There's no um, pressure. There's none of that. Um, but there's honesty, like what you're going to have to do. Like if somebody's like, I don't, I don't really want to do any work, you know, or like, okay, you wouldn't be right for us. Like, you know, uh, you know, and then they'll end up getting scammed by some investor Roche company. And I'll say, well, look, we're going to guide you, but we're going to make you do work. You know, you need to spend two to six hours a week, as little as two hours a week, every week doing the work. And the coach is going to guide you. Anything that comes in via email or what you need to say on the phone next, we'll cover that all. Like, you don't, we got your back. You don't need to worry about something comes up. We'll tell you exactly what to do, you know, um, where you don't have that on your own. Um, but you're going to have to do some work. Yeah, you don't have to start a business. You don't need to hire employees. You don't need to raise money. But to say you don't have to reach out to companies, you're going to dump the whole thing on them once you do a deal with the company. But you still have to do that work, you know. Uh, and some people just aren't ready to do that. And I tell them, well, like, you're not ready for us. You know, maybe you will be in the future. Keep watching our YouTube show, whatever. And that's fine. Um, but there are companies out there. So you don't have to do any work. It's like, it could be a lump of coal. They're going to tell you it's great. They'll ask you for 10 or 12 grand. Usually that's how what, what I see most of the time. They'll pretend to say, we'll do all the work for you. I've never met a single inventor personally that licensed a product that way. But every day we talk to somebody that's been taken for 10 or 12 grand by one of those companies. And the Federal Trade Commission warns against them. The Patent Office warns against them. We warn against them. It doesn't matter. There's an endless list of green inventors that think their idea it's all about the idea and they don't have to do any work. And, oh, but this company says they're going to do the work for me. And they're not. They're just going to pretend to. And they're going you know, to spam a few people because the contract says we need to submit your idea to industry. So if they spam three people, they did that. You know? And, and um, we, you know, that's one of the reasons why we started this $29 program where it's not a coaching program, but you get access to the site and the trainings and everything. So you guys should check that out. If you page up in the, um, in the, in the chat and you go to all services or just go to invent, right? Click on all services. You'll find it. I just call it the $29 program. So you guys should really consider that. And so if you want to kind of step it up a notch, but you're not ready for coaching and you want to kind of check things out. Um, or you just want to do things on your own, I would definitely check that out. Uh, da, da, da. Uh, Ethan said, I'm adding everyone I can. I'm just limited by the weekly connection limit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, on LinkedIn, you can only add so many people each week. Um, what I do recommend when you add that many people, Ethan, go back in and if people haven't responded for like months, just go ahead and remove them. But usually, you know, it does limit you and how many you can send out each week. Sounds like you're doing a decent job in that area. If you're getting impatient. Yeah, I would call and I would email as well. Definitely without a doubt. Um, you're welcome, Teresa. You're just thanking me for my time. Um, we're still way, way below the number of people that are attending and the number of people giving me a thumbs up. So I guess you guys just think I suck and I don't deserve the thumb up, thumbs up. Um, 
you know, like I, I'm going to tell you, Andrew, where you can take your thumb, put it. No, I'm just kidding. But, but seriously, <laughs> just for the humor, give me a thumbs up. If you don't like the answers, please. Um, I, I would like to see that. It really helps the YouTube algorithm. So more people watch this video. If you found like it was helpful, more people watch it. So I really like to see the same number of thumbs up as the number of people that were attending. Maybe some people hopped on and hopped off. So please help me out there. Um, Toby said, not as easy as portrayed. Don't draft your own provisional. I completely and utterly uh, disagree, Toby. Um, I'm not saying it's a piece of cake to write your own provisional. But first of all, writing your provisional is not nearly as important as doing your marketing materials. So sometimes inventors get really obsessed with doing a provisional and doing it perfectly. Um, and, and I'm like, well, but your marketing sucks. Like nobody's going to ever want to see your provisional. You got to fix that. Now we want our members to do a good job of both, but I'll Toby, I'll give you my advice. This may help you if you don't feel like it's that easy. Um, 80% of finding a good provisional is just being an inventor. So you want to think about the variations, workarounds, improvements. Most inventors don't do that when they work with an attorney. Inventors spend 10, 12, 15, 20 K on a patent and it's worthless because they didn't think about the variations, workarounds, improvements. They just said, here's my invention to the attorney. They didn't say, here's my invention and here's all the variations so I could really protect it. And the attorney didn't say, well, you need to give me the variations and workarounds for give you real protection. Instead, they take whatever crap the inventor gives them. And that was the inventor's fault for not giving them all those variations. And they just file it. And now you have a very expensive, very poorly done patent. So the thing that really empowers people um, Tony, and this may help you as well. And if you weren't doing this, you got to do it. Was it Tony or was it uh, Toby? Sorry, Toby. I just paged down. Um, is just be an inventor. Think about those variations, workarounds, improvements, include them. A version that's 70% is good, just as good, but not the version you're covering. It's hard for inventors to do that because after a while it becomes so infixed in your head what it is. And inventors will lose their creativity about the product. Now, this is what it is. This is what it is. Well, when you're filing a provision, what else could it be? Kind of knock yourself off, put your feet up on the desk and go, okay, I'm a really uncool company. I'm going to try to knock this inventor off. Throw all that in your provisional, right? Remember what I said about marketing materials earlier? Don't throw the kitchen sink in there. You can throw the kitchen sink when it comes to the provisional. Okay, so that's 80% of filing a good provisional. Have you ever heard an attorney say that? Hell no. Is it true? Absolutely freaking yes, it is. Now, the other 20% is the wording. People think provisional is supposed to be able to be written in common English. Have you ever looked at a patent and you're like, what the hell is this? Some sort of foreign language. You don't need to write a provisional at you doing that. Now, now um, Toby, we give our students, and you can buy it too, Toby. You can buy Smart IP on our website. It's a software we developed with patent attorney Gene Quinn, and it will guide you writing a provisional patent. So that helps you with the other 20%. And these, this is just a random statistic I came up with, guys, a percentage, because I believe it's so important. So I say 80% of it is thinking about the workarounds, variations, improvements. It's just a number I meant up in order to emphasize the importance of that. And the other 20% is the way you write it and that our smart IP software will help you with that. So if you go to a patent attorney, you can easily spend $2,500 following a provisional. Do I think you need to do that? No. Am I giving you legal advice? No, but you can use our software and you can buy that for 99 bucks, the smart IP software, and then you just pay the patent office fee of 
Um, are you going to do as good of a job as an attorney? If you you could pay twenty five hundred dollars to an attorney, given the variations, workarounds, improvements, are they probably going to do a slightly better job than you? Probably. Have I found that it matters? Never. I've never had a situation where one of our students got themselves in a position. Oh, I didn't do as good a job with the provisional as I should have, and now it's it's hurting me. Because you can just file another freaking provisional if you get a lot of traction. First, they can't see what you have. They have no freaking idea what you have. Don't show it to them. So if you file a provisional and you get all this traction, oh, crap, I got interest from five companies. First of all, first thing you're talking about is not the provisional. And if you got all that interest, then you go back and you go, maybe you hire an attorney now. Maybe you go back. You file another provisional for another 60 bucks and you do a better job. And then when you show it to them, you show them the better one. And then you also got the date from the other one. You didn't do as good of a job. So there's a practical nature to this that people that want to get obsessed with patents will get obsessed with patents and they'll never freaking go anywhere because they never approach a company out of their own fear and they have crappy marketing materials and they don't know how to do licensing. Patenting is not licensing. Licensing is getting your product in front of companies, getting them to take the product and license it. Patenting's just patenting. It's just throwing... So do you want to do a good job with both? Yes. So, but Toby, I, I hear you. I, I noticed that our students, they take a lot more time on their first product than their future products. So, you know, I get that, but, um, but it is not that hard. I have tons of students that don't have a GED. They don't have a high school degree. They're able to do it, you know, and then I have students that have a PhD and they're able to do it. So, um, but if you had no guidance, if you had our software and our coaches guide our students, Right. But if you had no guidance and you're just the patent office doesn't show you how to file a provisional, if you just go there, there's a form, you fill it out, but they're not showing you how to write it. There's no training there whatsoever. I guess they can't provide that. You know, they don't do that training, you know. Um, so so if that's what you were trying to do, yeah, I could see how it'd be confusing as hell, you know, um, definitely. Um, OK, so let's see what else we got here. So thank you for that, Toby. Uh, Veronica said, my background's in graphic design, illustration, product development, corporate with style guides. Oh, that's cool. So yeah, you'll you'll be able to you'll be able to do pretty well with the graphic design stuff. I do find that, and maybe this isn't you, that some graphic designers they're really good at graphic design but not good at marketing. And then some graphic designers can do marketing and do graphic design, but just because somebody's a good graphic designer does not make them a good marketer. Um, so, and just especially now you're a graphic designer professional, but just because you know how to do Photoshop a little bit, doesn't make you a graphic designer. It definitely doesn't make you a marketer. So we mentor our students to make sure the marketing's great and the graphic design great is great. And the virtual prototype is great as well. Lewis said, licensing is way easier than running a business. Yes, Lewis, it's, it's infinitely easier. And most people don't know it's an option. It's really sad. So if you guys get the word out that licensing is an incredible option, you're going to be doing that inventor a huge favor. It doesn't have to be with us helping. Maybe you guide them to our channel to watch us ramble about licensing. And they're like, holy crap, I don't, I could, you know, I, I had a business, I had a, a business or I had a job. I, I figured I couldn't do this. I thought I needed 20,000 for a patent and then to make a prototype and start a business. I don't need to do any of that. You know, I can file a provisional for 60 bucks. I can do a virtual prototype. I don't need to make a prototype. And I can license it to a big company. I can keep my day job. I can keep my business. So it's, it's incredibly empowering. It's way more empowering than any stupid TV show like Shark Tank. They're still trying to get you start a business. It's archaic. 
You know, licensing is the most incredible business model. It really is. We didn't invent it. InventRight didn't invent licensing. Licensing being around for hundreds of years, you know, but it's just gotten very, very popular. Um, yeah, so Andre said, when signing up for Academy Online Coaching, um, do you, can you do, yeah, you can do a one-time payment or you can do a payment plan, Andre, you were asking. But, you know, don't hesitate to book with us. Talk to Sylvia or Dana. Just click on the contact us page at inventright.com and talk to them. But, yeah, you can pay it over six months so the payments are smaller, definitely. Um, Ken said, is it wise to raise money to find an audience raising money on a website? No. You don't need to raise a freaking dime. Why do you need to raise money? You know, when you license to a big company, it's their money and it's their distribution and it's it's their company and all their work you know so you don't need to raise money no 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 no. when you lie do a licensing deal you raise the money essentially um uh do domen 8377 as an inventor we have successfully obtained a patent for innovative product and we now have a fully functional prototype ready for demonstration Okay, so uh, furthermore, we've been in discussions with a company that has expressed a keen interest in licensing our patent. First of all, you don't don't ever say that. Don't say they're licensing your patent. They're licensing your product. You're putting too much emphasis and importance on the patent when you do that. We need someone to help with the agreement and negotiation. Can you guys help with that? Yeah, we do that. We have a month-to-month -month negotiations. We can do that, definitely. So um, again, book a call. Just drop me an email. Drop me an email at Andrew and InventRight. I'd be happy to give you a call, Domen8377. I don't know what your real name is. But drop me an email and say, Andrew said I was supposed to drop him an email. I'm in a deal. And I want to talk to Andrew about that. And I can explain how we can help. Um, hmm. This is a very the uh, philosophical one. So I think we'll end with this one which is kind of fun. The Walking Giant says, for success, should inventors put money first or value? Question mark. For example, I'll make millions of dollars with my invention or I'll change millions of lives with my invention. I, I, think, I think both. First of all, not everybody's making millions of dollars with one idea. I mean, if you were making $100,000 a year with your invention, would you be happy? Or 50? Or another invention? You're making... 200,000, it sells for five years, that's a million dollars. You know, you have to decide what you're happy with. And if that, if you're really focused on money, work on projects that have that level of success. I don't find that that's a problem for most inventors. And it's a total cliche, but you do what you love, the money will come. I found that to be true. Most inventors aren't just focused on money. Most, they want to make money, but they also want to express, it might be subconscious, they want to express themselves. They want to create something and they want people to enjoy their creation. You're basically product artists. So the combination of being passionate about your ideas and being determined and also want to make money, that's the killer combo. When I see people that, and I don't see this often with inventors, I rarely see inventors like this, where they're just focused on the money, it's not enough. It's not enough. You have to be passionate about your idea and you have to enjoy it and you have to want people to enjoy your product and want to make money. So I think when you have both, you're, you're doing great. You could even be more on the side of, I want to express myself. I want people to enjoy my product. And I'm not that money focused and still be, and then you do it, love the money will come. Um, or you're just like a 50, 50, 
situation. Or it could even be, you know, 60, 65% money, like 35% I want to do it. People love it. But when you're just focused on the money, if it's not what you love, if you're not passionate about it, I don't think it's enough for inventors. I don't think it's enough. So I think you need both. And yeah, you, my two cents, you're, you know, that was their handle. You're, you're like a product artist. See yourself as an artist. But like artists, most artists suck at marketing their stuff and marketing themselves. And Eventrite, we're showing you how to be successful product artists where you're putting a great marketing piece up. You're not just focusing on patents. You're not just in your garage. You're getting out of your garage into the world via LinkedIn, via emails, and sometimes via phone, getting them in front of companies so you can make things happen. So once again, if there's anybody that didn't give me a thumbs up, if you give me a thumbs up, I'd appreciate that. Subscribe down below. In the links, if you page all the way up in the chat, you're going to notice our giveaway. Make sure everybody to enter that giveaway. We're giving away three of our students' products every week this week. We may even bleed it into one week of next month. We'll get started a little late with it. And so if you enter that contest and you look at that page of our students that have licensed products, that have products currently on the market, we're going to give away three of their products every week. So if you win, I'll we'll reach out to you. Actually, be me reaching out to you. And I'll say, hey, you won. Pick one of their products, and then we'll ship it to you. We'll ship you one of our students' products. So that's also just very ins inspiring to see, oh, these are all a bunch of our students' products that have licensed products. Um, and yeah, there's products with our commercial industrial products, you know, products that are $5,000. We don't have those products up there. Like I had a student that licensed a medical product. It's a CPAP-related product. You know, are we putting that up there? No, we put the consumer products up there because it was a buyer guide we created for Christmas to help our students and to inspire people to, these are all InventRight students that license products. And then we said, why not make it a contest? Like we'll give away three of our students products every week. So go in the link that I pasted, you page up in the chat, you'll find it um, and check that out. Also check out our free resources and then book a call with us if you want to get some help and click on that coaching link. Um, and all those links are up in the chat there. So thank you everybody. Take care, keep inventing and I'll catch up with you guys next time. See you, bye.